Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on August 3rd, 2022. We had an FOMC meeting last week where the Fed met market expectations and raised the Fed funds rate by another 75 basis points. To give us an update on that decision and other macro developments, we will begin with Jerry Tsai, a vice president in the Guggenheim Investments Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Following Jerry, I will have a conversation with Jenny Marler, a senior managing director and head of Guggenheim Real Estate where we focus primarily on one of the real estate sector's hardest hit by the pandemic, hotels. Turns out that two years after COVID hit, there is a lot of good news in hotels. Later in the episode, we will answer a listener's question about our podcast. If you have a question for one of our guests, please send it to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer it, either on air on a future episode or offline. But first, let's go to Jerry Tsai of our macro group. Jerry, take it away. Thanks, Jay. We continue to see signs that the U.S. economy is slowing. Real GDP unexpectedly fell 0.9% in the second quarter. Inventories accounted for more than half of the decline, subtracting two percentage points from GDP growth. Residential fixed investment and government spending also contracted, and the pace of consumption growth slowed to its lowest level since the post-lockdown recovery. The economic slowdown could be taken as a sign that the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes are doing their job in slowing demand and eventually cooling inflation. For example, residential investment saw the second largest decline since 2010. And the gain in consumption only came from spending on services, while consumption on both durable and non-durable goods decreased. Higher borrowing costs are certainly weighing on consumer spending on big-ticket items. So according to the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Report, purchasing intentions for cars, homes, and major appliances all pulled back further in July. Also, the headline Consumer Confidence Index continued to decline, reaching its lowest level since February 2021. The decline was led by a fall in the present situation component, and consumer expectations also edged down. Inflation and further tightening in financial conditions are the main factors weighing on consumer confidence, and they will likely continue to be a drag on consumption in the coming months. Another surprise from last week is the stronger-than-expected reading on the Employment Cost Index, an indicator that Fed Chairman Jay Powell highlighted in the press conference. Private wages and salaries, an important part of the Employment Cost Index, accelerated in Q2. A tight labor market and strong wage growth could keep inflation elevated and pressure the Fed to continue raising interest rates at an aggressive pace. Speaking of the Fed, the FOMC raised the Fed funds rate by 75 basis points at the July policy meeting. The Fed statement's characterization of economic growth was downgraded slightly, 
acknowledging that recent indicators of spending and production had softened. And in the press conference, Chair Powell noted that 75 basis point hikes were unusually large, and it would likely become appropriate to slow the pace of increases at some point. Powell also noted that the full effect of rate hikes had not yet been felt, and he reiterated that the FOMC aims to rebalance supply and demand through below potential growth instead of a recession. These comments suggest that the Fed leadership continues to resist the argument that a recession is simply the inescapable price of bringing down inflation, which implies that the FOMC would likely slow the pace. If it thought that further aggressive tightening would tip the economy into a recession, so from now on, the Fed will go on a meeting-by-meeting basis, just like the ECB, and it won't provide the kind of clear guidance that it provided on the way to neutral. While Chair Powell said another seventy-five basis point hike at the next meeting could be appropriate, that will depend on incoming economic data. Overseas. Data releases were light last week. China's industrial profits rebounded in June, likely reflecting the further improvement of supply chains and gradual resumption of production activity in manufacturing hubs. In Germany, business morale weakened further in July, with the EFO business sentiment index falling more than expected. And as Germany and many other European countries are preparing for a cold winter, Russia further reduced natural gas supply to Europe through the Nord Stream One pipeline to only twenty percent of the pipeline's capacity. So, with natural gas falling at such a depressed level, the energy crunch in Europe will only get even worse, and any gas squeeze in Europe will tighten U.S. petroleum product markets again. As energy-hungry companies in Europe are switching to oil from natural gas, that's all I have. I'll turn it back to you, Jay. Thanks, Jerry Tsai. Next up, we have my conversation with Jenny Marler, head of Guggenheim Real Estate. Let's listen in. Welcome, Jenny, and thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jay. I'm very happy to be here. Listen to start us off here, Jenny. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Guggenheim Real Estate? What do you guys look at? What do you cover? How do you fit into the whole investment process here at Guggenheim? Sure, I'm happy to.、Um, the Guggenheim Real Estate team does both debt investments, being you know, commercial mortgage loans, as well as equity investments in commercial real estate.、Uh, the products that we cover are really all sectors within commercial real estate, whether that be Multifamily, office, hospitality, industrial,、um, and anything that comes in between.、Uh, we work with our portfolio managers to identify opportunities for our clients to invest in real estate.、Uh, from a relative value standpoint, you know, working with other sector teams to kind of understand how real estate fits into a diversified client portfolio. Great, now Jenny. I know you cover the waterfront, as they say in real estate. We don't have time to talk about the waterfront, so let's focus on one particular sector: the hospitality and hotel sector. So, as we head into the last several weeks of summer vacations, how is the U.S. hospitality industry faring now that we've, you know, come two solid years、uh, from the beginning of the pandemic? It's a great question, Jay.、Uh, yeah, the pandemic certainly put a stress on the hospitality industry, unlike anything that I had ever seen. You know, starting in 
March of 2020, seeing occupancies falling on average um, for U.S. hotels below 20 percent, you know, something that they had never seen and then a slow climb back from there. So as we've passed the all-star break and hit the July 4th holiday weekend, the midpoint of the summer uh, for that holiday weekend, occupancy at U.S. hotels was just under 70 percent. To put that in perspective, a year ago in 2021, when people first really started getting the bug to travel again as lockdowns started to be lifted, occupancy was around 71 percent. Uh, but certainly much higher than it's come up from in its 2020 pandemic lows. Um, Hotel demand and occupancy always lulls a little bit in mid-July after the 4th of July. That's in part because a lot of people are, let's put it simply, on vacation. So folks are not going back to work. You don't see the midweek travel numbers. But all the demand patterns that we're seeing right now indicate there continues to be a resurgence of travel and hospitality. Seems like it's going to continue to recover throughout the summer and into the fall. I'll say that historically, the 30th week of the year, that was July 18th to 23rd this year, tends to produce the highest weekly demand of the year. We don't have those that data just yet, but if we don't see that demand start to rise, that will start to be a red flag that indicates that maybe some of the broader market pressures may um, starting to create a pullback in hospitality once again, but all in all, quite a strong recovery since COVID. Um, we actually spent some time looking at how the occupancy numbers compare to what we saw in 2019, immediately before the pandemic. So across the board, you know, over the last you know, 18 months or so, occupancy continues to be slightly under 2019. But all in all, you know, with all the fears of you know, how COVID might prevail upon the industry for quite some time, a pretty strong rebound to occupancy for our U.S. hotels. And what were the, the lows in occupancy at the depths of the pandemic? At the depths of the pandemic, uh, it also varied by product. You know, if you looked at a market average, the absolute low point was just below 20%. Um, As things started to reopen and people were able to get outside, the impacts became much more diverse. So those sort of full service hotels, depending on business travelers coming on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, really continued to suffer all through 2020 with, with those of us in business not out traveling. But then you started to see mountain hotels and ski resort hotels that, you know, people were able to get in their car and drive to start to do quite well. And limited service hotels that, you know, were benefiting from, you know, construction workers, nurses traveling during the pandemic and other people looking for, you know, more than just, you know, a one night stay that, you know, maybe anchored down in a market for some time also performing quite well. So very divergent effects effects on the types of products within the hospitality industry. Well, it does sound, as you said, like it's good news for occupancy, but are you seeing hotels compromising rates in order to drive up those occupancy numbers? That's been one of the most interesting things um, to our team, Jay, about you know, how the pandemic has affected hotels, because normally when you go through you know, a recessionary or you know, a, any other sort of period that you know, there's a strain on demand on hotels, you know, the one way to really lure those travelers back is to start cutting room rates. That happened very briefly during COVID when the market just panicked about what might happen. But pretty steadily um, starting in, you know, 2021, we started to see a divergence where ADR started increasing even more than occupancy. So 24 markets in the United States that report their data to um, the, the industry averages reported their highest nominal ADR since weekly tracking of ADR began in 2000. 
at the individual property level, 44% of reporting hotels had a nominal ADR that was 16% greater over the past two weeks than those same two weeks in 2019. So that's even above the rate of inflation, showing that ADR growth has actually still uh, has been outperforming inflation as well. One of the most interesting statistics that I thought, and you know, if you were booking vacation travel over the past year, you may have seen this and seen some sticker shock, but there were 50 hotels that reported average daily room rates above $1,000 over the past two weeks, compared to only 15 hotels at that price point in 2019. So if you take a straight average, the room rate for those 50 hotels has risen almost 70% versus the same period in 2019. So even adjusting for inflation, the fact that you know this pent-up demand to get out of your homes and travel again has allowed hotels to take those rates even higher than they were before the pandemic. So that certainly has helped the bottom line. So uh, average dollar room rate or ADR uh, seems to be very strong. Um, but what does it look like in the other uh, revenue line and hospitality, uh, food and beverage? Um, are travelers eating and drinking at hotels again at, uh, at, at the pace they had in the past? Yeah, it's been interesting. So um, there was a report recently by the American Hospitality Lodging Association that reported that, you know, based purely on room revenue and demand and occupancy, you know, those room revenues and occupancy levels should nearly return to 2019 levels in 2022. What that doesn't take into account, though, are the roughly $50 billion in pre-pandemic spending on food and beverage, on meeting spaces, you know, other services, the spa that, you know, you take advantage of when you travel to hotels. And, and those numbers are still lagging. Um, one industry source is projecting that by the end of this year, meeting and event revenue will still be below 60% of where it was in 2019 and even in 2023, barely back to 90% of what it was before the pandemic. So all of those other ancillary revenue sources are continuing to lag. I will say in terms of um, the good news on the food and beverage front, though, is hotels are offering food and beverage again. You know, I, I, for those of you who did travel right after the pandemic, you know, the grab and go was very sad at some point in time, but food and beverage is back and consumers are exhibiting a willingness to spend uh, on food and beverage. So actual you know, daily output of dollars spent on food and beverage at hotels is pretty much back to where it was in 2019. That's the good news. The bad news is we had, do have inflation. So when you kind of benchmark that to you know, real dollars, it's not quite back to where it was in 2019. So there's really not been an in incremental profit growth beyond the ADR number for hotels. And that's, that's something they're still going to have to work on. And what about conferences and events? Is event revenue beginning to recover? Yeah, I mean, as I said, it's it's back. It's not certainly not back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, we are starting to see some of it return, but again, you know, if we're still at ninety percent of our twenty nineteen room revenues for for meetings and events, then um, we still have a ways to go and a fair amount of wood to chop to get back to you know what was basically the baseline in two thousand nineteen. It's been interesting. I, I saw a statistic this week, um, and we've seen this in a couple of the assets in our own portfolios about the pent-up demand for weddings. <laughs> so even though conferences aren't back, you are starting to see more social events that you know people put major events, you know, major family events on hold through the pandemic. And that has been quite busy through this year. But again, I, industry sources really don't think back to kind of a sense of normalcy for those ancillary room revenues, event revenues and such until as late as 2025. What about the general business traveler? 
Um, is he or she back on the road? You know, it's been interesting. They are, business travelers are back on the road. Um, and for the first time, we're starting to see a more continued steady midweek occupancy numbers. Um, so, you know, most leisure travelers are not the ones traveling Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we're finally starting to see an uptick, but it's still predicted to be about 30% lower than it was pre-pandemic. So not there yet. And certainly the international travel continues to lag domestic. So we still have a ways to go before we're back but based on all of this, Jenny, and from where you sit, uh, do the numbers indicate that hotels have fully recovered from the pandemic, or are you still seeing headwinds out there? Short answer, there's not been a full recovery yet. There's a lot of good news. Like I said, the ADR numbers tracking up, so leading to higher room revenues, you know, people's pent-up demand and willingness to get back on the road and travel driving occupancy numbers. But we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's estimated that U.S. hotel owners lost about $112 billion in 2020 and 2021 and, and revenue that they simply didn't earn when people were not traveling. And that's a big that's a big hole for those operators, equity owners to dig out of. So that's there. And then you look at the inflation, the headwinds that, you know, the industry continues to face. Um, inflation is putting a lot of pressure on margins and consumer spending. So, for example, even though hotels are back to serving food and beverage and people are spending money on food and beverage, the cost of the inputs to make that available has gone up. So that puts pressure on the hotel operating margins. You know, there, there will be a point in time if the inflation numbers don't come down when we will start to see that affect consumer decisions too and their willingness to spend that over $1,000 a night for a hotel room uh, just to be able to get out of their homes and go on vacation. So I think that's one thing that we keep our eye on you know, labor continues to be an issue for hotels. Um, the industry estimates are anywhere between 7 and 12 percent uh, less uh, hotel labors than we had in 2019. So it's it's very challenging for hotels to staff um, just for the basic service, as well as, you know, trying to get those events back. And then you know, the, the, the depressed event revenues that we talked about are still going to continue to weigh on the, the ultimate bottom line of U.S. hotels. So consumers need to keep traveling. Businesses need to get their folks back on the road, going to events and, you know, doing normal business travel. And, you know, we, we're going to have to see all those things start to improve, you know, before we start to see a meaningful improvement to the bottom line. And how has all this played into relative value in uh, the hotel space, whether you're a buyer or a seller or a debt investor or an equity investor? Um, are these uh, changes being reflected in the values that you're seeing out there? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, people had very doomsday scenarios about what was going to happen to you know, the value of you know U.S. hotel assets and you know the the price investors may be willing to pay. And you know, uh, the mar- that's in part driven by you know you have to have a willing buyer and a willing seller. And for several months after COVID, you simply didn't see any hotels trading hands. I mean, sellers were terrified to put them on the market, and no buyers were interested in, in considering buy opportunities until we got a little bit more certainty about the pandemic effects. Um, so, but that has calmed down. I mean, hotel prices over the past twelve months have actually increased a little over twelve percent. Um, you, we are starting to see transaction volumes in hotels, uh, and not all of that distressed hotel investing. You know, there have been a couple of eye-popping transactions that have happened. So that that market is very much back, although certainly not to where it was. Um, and 
you know, industry estimates by say March of this year showed hotel valuations, you know, maybe 10% off of where they were before COVID. So that's steadily continued to improve. And, you know, certainly that impact to the bottom line of room revenues bouncing back and people traveling has helped. Now, including hospitality, but also beyond, you know, where are you seeing value nowadays? And if you had money to put to work, where would you put it? Well, it's interesting. I think there's been a real divergence within commercial real estate amongst, you know, several different subsectors. Um, you know, we have been looking at a lot of multifamily transactions. You know, the, again, everybody was terrified at the beginning of COVID that rents were going to fall and people were fleeing the cities and no one was ever going to rent an apartment in Manhattan again. And that's simply been unfounded. In fact, quite the opposite has happened. You know, there's been such a demand for rental housing that rents have have increased materially. And, you know, with the, the shortages in some markets in terms of, you know, housing, you know, it's been very challenging to find affordable housing. So you know, that sector continues to be quite strong with vacancy rates very low and still a very high demand for people to have rental housing available. Um, we, we, we've been very heavily invested in the warehouse distribution logistics space. Um, you know, that space definitely saw a significant uptick during the pandemic with everybody rushing to find ways to get goods to people's homes and to get them there faster than they did before the pandemic. And even though it's cooled and even though, you know, some major market players in that space have announced some pullback in terms of new development and potentially subleasing some activity, a cooling is not a decrease. Um, the market had been on fire for quite quite a long period of time, you know, with, you know, double digit, you know, growth numbers every quarter. And that's not sustainable for the long haul. So I think a little bit of what you're seeing in that space is just a bit more of a return to normalcy instead of a rocket ship heading up. Um, you know, the, the sector we're probably watching the most right now where we see the most uncertainty is office. Um, it was interesting, the, the journal this morning had a very interesting op-ed about the importance of the office to our culture. And getting your people together and talking over the water cooler and having your new analysts, you know, learn about the industry by hearing, you know, the office jargon and the chatter in the office. And when you think about the importance to us as a culture, you know, who, who hasn't watched the office and, you know, that's where, you know, people meet and that's where work gets done, you know? So at the end of the day, but work from home is, is putting a lot of pressure on that. And, you know, ultimately if people do not come back to the office, it, you know, somewhat near levels they did before, that will be challenging for some buildings. So that's probably the one area we're watching the closest right now. So just so our, our listeners who might not be directly involved in, you know, your market, uh, give them, give us a sense of what kind of returns are available uh, in the areas that you're talking about, like warehouse and multifamily. What's the return proposition? for some of these opportunities? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of volatility in that space right now. I mean, literally just in the last, you know, 90 days, we've seen coupons on commercial mortgages come up from, you know, call it the mid threes to the mid fives. You know, it's it, our market is a private real estate market. So we have, you know, absolute transparency into the assets that we're lending against and the cash flows. Uh, so that's ultimately what we're looking at. But you know, if you were in the market looking, we've been speaking about hotels today uh, for a very strong hotel loan, uh, mortgage loan, and you wanted to refinance your mortgage debt right now, you're probably paying 200 basis points higher than you were just 90 days ago. You know, so there's definitely been a lot of movement in mortgage loans. Um, on the equity side, you know, ultimately we're underwriting to cash flows. You know, with rents continuing to increase, you know, we feel good about those equity returns. Um, 
They obviously are going to diverge by sector, but you know, we've been seeing you know, low double-digit returns for our clients and you know, multifamily and industrial space and you know, higher returns as you get into you know, the hospitality space and, and some of the more opportunistic plays that we consider. But um, you know, the volatility is going to have to calm down a little bit because what's happened at some level is if you are a party who doesn't have to transact in the middle of uncertainty, there have been some people sitting on the sidelines. So we, we've not seen a lot of borrowers seeking 10-year mortgage debt right now because I think there's you know, a view that those coupons will come down a little bit from where we sit right now. But there's certainly been a significant uptick just in the past 90 days. And demand for, for these types of investments among institutional investors is still fairly strong, I imagine. It definitely is. I mean, you know, Real estate, commercial real estate is always a great inflation hedge, you know, and if you look at, you know, ultimately, where can you put money in the market? um, And at what rates can you do that? You know, real estate is still a very attractive asset class for a lot of investors. Jenny, are there any other thoughts that you might have for our listeners before we sign off? No, I think that captures it. It's certainly been an interesting last 36 months in commercial real estate. Uh, the one thing I would say um, is, you know, what we all would have maybe thought looking into the crystal ball in March of 2020 and all the terrible things that could have happened to real estate uh, really did not pan out. You know, so we are, of course, looking at a broader market recession right now that will will put some strain on cash flows. You know, at the end of the day, there will be some tenants that are deciding not to renew leases or downsize leases. And so we're mindful of that. But, you know, all in all, despite all of the uncertainty, uh, commercial real estate has been an asset class that has continued to perform very strong. Well, thank you very much, Jenny, for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, I hope to come back and visit with us soon. Of course. Thank you, Jay. Now, before we wrap up this week, we have a listener question to answer. And our question this week comes from Alexandra in New York, who had a question for me, of all people. Alexandra asked if we would ever have a guest on Macro Markets who was not from Guggenheim Investments. Well, Alexandra, the short answer is yes. Absolutely, we would have external guests. Now, we have spent the last 19 episodes of Macro Markets getting our podcast sea legs with my Guggenheim colleagues, but we're open to any suggestions for outside voices. We will likely start this fall. In the meantime, if you have any ideas or suggestions for an external guest, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to make it happen. My thanks once again to Jerry Tsai and Jenny Marler for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. 
High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. Guggenheim Partners Investment Management LLC, Security Investors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Partners Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim